Well, Friday morning, I was sitting at my home studying, and my phone rung, and I noticed that the uh, caller was, it didn't give a name, it just gave Kingston, Jamaica. And I thought, oh, who in the world would call me from Kingston? But I said, I don't think I'm going to answer that. And then I thought, well, it could be a missionary or it could be a preacher that I know. They may have some sort of problem. Uh, I, I better take it. So I answered it, and the man introduced himself as Mr. John Whiskey. I couldn't remember meeting anybody named Whiskey before. But anyhow, I said, hello, John. How are you doing? What do you need? And he said, you are one of the more lucky people probably alive today because out of a pool of 900,000 people, your name has been drawn. And you are the winner of $2.5 million. And I said, wow, John, you have made my day, buddy. I'll tell you that. My wife was sitting on the couch beside me, and I hit the button on the phone because I wanted her to hear the conversation because we've never had such good news in one day in our life. And he said, now, listen to me. Uh, Would you like to uh, participate in this? And I said, I surely would, John. How could I not? And he said, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm from the M-A-G-M-A Corporation. Now, remember that. Well, okay, I still remember it. He did a good job, didn't he? M-A-G-M-A Corporation. And a box will be delivered to your door. Somebody will personally deliver to you this $2.5 million. And I said, wow, John, you guys think of everything. That's fantastic. And so John and I continued, and he gave me the address of the post office box that uh, the company represents. I was careful. I didn't give him any information about me at this point because I didn't know John that well. But <laughs> so uh, at any rate, <clears throat> he said, the money's coming. And he said, just one thing you need to do. And I said, what's that, John? And he said, I, I said, John, I'm overwhelmed. I'm elated. I just can't believe y'all would do this for me. This is pure grace, isn't it, John? I didn't do a thing to deserve this. That's right. You know, it's wonderful. Okay, well, he said, is there a Walgreen near you? And I said, yeah, there's a couple of them right within a mile or so. Okay, well, uh, he said, would you go to Walgreen? Now, there'll be some expense involved in expediting this uh, transaction. So go to Walgreen, and I'll need for you to buy a a Walgreen card there at Walgreen, a credit card for $198. I said, hey, no problem, John. What else do I do? I'm interested in that two and a half million, my friend. And John said, well, you buy the card and you mail it to the address again. Now, it's the M-A-G-M-A Magma Corporation. I said, I think I got that, John, post office box, Kingston, Jamaica. He said, now, the quicker you do that, the better, because he said, honestly, you know, there's a bonus with this prize. You will also receive a brand new Ferrari with leather interior. I said, John, I don't even know if I could drive that. Some of my church members would criticize me for driving a red Ferrari with brand new leather interior. But John, if you want to send it, I'll give it a spin, okay? I'd like to drive it at least once. And Could I sell it after that? You can do whatever you want with it. 
Okay, John, well, thank you so much. I said, now, are you ready to go get the uh, gift certificate, the, the card? And I said, I am, John. I said, one thing I need to say to you, though. You've been so kind to me. Let me tell you about a wonderful gift. John, do you know that the Bible says that God gives us a gift of eternal life? John, you ever thought about eternal life? You know how long eternal life lasts? Why? You couldn't buy that $2.5 million in a brand new Ferrari, could you, John? No, sir. My grandmother used to speak about that. I said, well, that's great, John. And so uh, I said, do you know how you get that? And I told him how you can get eternal life. And I just about was through, and John said to me, Mr. Monroe, I'm really in a hurry. I need to get you to go ahead and pick up that Walgreen card. And I said, John, there's one other thing about that gift. There's a verse over in the book of Revelation that says that all liars will have their part in the lake which burneth with fire for all of eternity. John... Have you ever thought about what it would be to burn in fire for all of eternity? John, wow, I wouldn't do that for two and a half million even. Click. <laughs> End of the story. John chapter 18, verse 33. <clears throat> Stand to your feet with me and read, if you will. That's, that story actually happened just as close as I could tell it. You can ask my wife, who is the uh, guardian of truth at our house. <laughs> now, in John chapter 18, <clears throat> in verse 33, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you say this, Are you saying this? of your own accord, in other words, or did others put you up to this? He said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priest have delivered you unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate said unto him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say that I am. You're saying that I am. And then notice the words of Jesus. To this end or reason was I born. And for this cause or purpose came I into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth Heareth my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? Question. How important is the truth to you? How important is the truth to you? You may be seated. I don't think that I could stand here for all of eternity and speak to this audience and overstate to you 
the importance of truth, especially at this point where I am living in history. Truth is the very foundation of a virtuous and righteous life. As I tried to illustrate in my little story of the scam artist, truth is important. You see, truth is essential to communication. I listen to people sometimes, like I did John Whiskey on the phone, and I said, I don't believe him. And when truth, when you understand that a person is telling you a falsehood, that they are lying to you, then all communication breaks down, doesn't it? So truth is absolutely, four things about truth I want to give you real quickly. Truth is essential for communication. Number two, truth is the basis of relationships. One of the things that causes me or you to respect someone is that we believe that they tell the truth. In fact, truth is the basis for trust. If I trust you or I trust someone, I trust them because I believe they are a truth teller. Truth is the basis of influence. A person can influence me greatly if I know they tell the truth. If, on the other hand, I believe they're giving me falsehoods, then they can have zero influence over me. Truth is the basis of relationships. Um, I won't follow anybody as a leader unless I know they are a truth teller. Do you remember when George Bush, the elder, was running for president back in the 90s? And his entire campaign was on the basis of that he would not raise taxes. In fact, the Democrats baited him and tried to get him. They kept on saying about him, this man's going to raise your taxes. He's going to raise your taxes. All of their ads were saying, if you vote for Bush, he will raise your taxes. And over and over and over, he denied it. His campaign was, there's not going to be any more new taxes. And then he went to the convention. And at the convention on national television, some of you who are my age, you remember well George Bush standing there and looking straight into the camera and saying to all of America, read my lips, no new taxes. And six months later, they raised our taxes. And three years later, he lost in a landslide to Bill Clinton, and everybody remembered that he had broken a promise, he had given a falsehood that day. I wonder how many marriages and the people who are listening in this room and on television this morning, I wonder how many marriages of people that I'm speaking to have been destroyed because of falsehood, because of lies, because of deception and trust broke down and the relationship was destroyed. Today, the nation is badly divided And one of the things that's in the headlines are allegations that our president somehow colluded with the Russians in order to throw the election and to win it and to defeat his opponent. He denies it. The other party keeps on making the allegations. So far, nobody's brought forward any real evidence, but it's rumor, it's innuendo, it's political spin, and ultimately, We're all confused because the truth is being obscured somewhere by someone. 
Thirdly, I'd like to say that truth is required for sound decision-making. Another recent uh, example from our history. America went to war back in Iraq uh, earlier in this century, 2000, whatever it was. And hundreds of thousands of men and women went over there to fight to overthrow Saddam. The news media and the government said that Saddam had chemical weapons. Well, we know he had them at one time. He used them on his own people. You can see on film the evidence of him killing the Kurdish people there. But when our people went in, we couldn't find any weapons, of chemical weapons and weapons of mass destruction as we refer to them. And because of that, the media began to jump on the president, and uh, the president didn't do well after that because trust had been destroyed. And the decision had apparently been made on false premises or faulty premises at least. When you buy a house or you finance any uh, very expensive commodity and you have to borrow money to do it, they give you a little form, and it's called the Truth in Lending form. And it specifies the interest rate and the APR, the percentage of interest, and so on that you will be paying on the whole loan. And they tell you all these facts that people didn't used to tell you. The reason we have that form is because unscrupulous people used to deceive people about the interest rate. They didn't have to make any money on the deal. All they had to do was make money on the, on the, on the loan and on the interest, and some of them in, in, in very unscrupulous manners. And so they call it the truth in lending because truth is required if I'm going to make a sound and a good decision. And fourthly, truth is the foundation of a properly functioning economy for the entire country. Adam Smith was one of the most famous economists in all of history. He wrote a book that's called The Wealth of Nations. And in it, back in the 1700s when Adam Smith wrote, he said it's impossible to have corruption in the government and prosperity with the people. And it was a revolutionary concept. Now, he wrote that because he came out of a very Christian background. He had a Judeo-Christian way of thinking, a worldview. And to him, he looked at all these other countries, and we look at them today, some of these third world banana republic countries that we look at, and these little countries, they are so absolutely corrupt, and their people are so poor. Just go down to Latin America, and you will see it in an illustration of it in virtually every country down there. And so... We can't even have prosperity. When truth breaks down, our transactions, our economic business transactions cannot even function. There's a couple of verses that describe a society where truth is broken down. You will find them in the book of, uh, of Isaiah and chapter 59. Would you turn there in your Bible? And I, I don't like to take a lot of time to turn and look at a reference, except sometimes the references are so vitally important. You need to look it up and see it with your eyes and, and hopefully even underline it in your Bible and see that what I'm telling you here today is, is exactly truth. Isaiah chapter number 59 and verse 14. Isaiah is describing his culture in the days just prior to the captivity that will occur within the century. Isaiah 59, 14, and judgment is turned away backward. 
and justice standeth far off. Sounds like America, doesn't it? Truth is fallen in the street. When something falls in the street, it's run over. It's pushed aside. It's destroyed. It's defaced and dirtied. And that's what he says about truth. It's trash and litter in the street to the minds of the people there. And equity cannot enter. The word equity in our King James Bible is basically integrity. Truth has fallen in the street, and integrity is, it cannot even enter. And in verse 15, yea, truth faileth. And in verse 15, it says, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. Nothing so displeases God as a lie, because the very nature of God is truth. You remember, there was a time in America, you remember some of those old John Wayne movies? And, uh, but if you lied to somebody, if you call somebody a liar, that's what it was. If you call somebody a liar, partner, you're going to get plugged for that. And you would kill a man over your honor if he called you a liar. It was the absolute worst offense. It was worse than if he were to spit in your face because we had a high view of truth. We had a high view of honor and integrity meant something. We did business transactions by the millions of dollars and we did it with a handshake. We didn't even need a piece of paper because truth prevailed in our culture at that time. What is truth? Don't roll your eyes, please, and say some sort of philosophical discourse by a professor-type presentation today. No, no, no. Let me tell you what truth is, and maybe you ought to write this down in your Bible because it is vital. Truth is that which corresponds to and is consistent with reality. Truth is that which corresponds to and is consistent with what is real. And so I say the top of this desk is about, I haven't measured it, but 15 inches, 18 inches, 17 inches. See, that corresponds with reality. If I said to you, this disc is a yard wide, you'd say, no, he exaggerated that. He overstated his case. It's not a yard there. Truth means that when I say something and I make a statement, that whatever I say must reflect exactly what that something is. I said, the pulpit is about 16, 17, 18 inches across here. Some, what I say must reflect exactly what something is, or I'm not going to be considered truthful in my statement. And truth requires an objective standard. Did you notice what I said? It's so many inches. Well, what is an inch? An inch is a standard. An inch is a recognized measurement. You can go to the Smithsonian Institute, and they got a stick up there that will give you the exact, absolutely within, uh, uh, you know, millionths of an inch. It'll give you what one inch is. That's the standard. It's objective, meaning it's outside myself, meaning it's unchanging. 
It's not going to vary from day to day and week to week. And so I stated the truth, but I stated it in terms of an unchanging standard outside of myself. This is not my opinion that this desk is 15 to 17, 18 inches wide. That's an objective fact. We can go get a yardstick and we can measure it. And it's going to fall somewhere within those parameters, I believe. Now, in the moral and spiritual realm, we have an objective standard. And that objective standard is lying there in your lap, I believe. We call it the Bible, the Word of God. And it is the very foundation of the Christian faith. It is truth as we know truth to be. And in the moral and spiritual realm, we measure things not by inches. We measure them by whether they are good or are they bad. Are they righteous or are they unrighteous? Are they moral or are they immoral? And all of those terms, while they're not physical terms like we would measure the top of a pulpit with, those terms all are objective terms when we go over and compare them with the Bible because we have there an objective standard, an external standard from us by which we can measure things in the moral and spiritual realm. Now that's changing. That's one of the primary reasons I bring this message this morning. That whole, the whole atmosphere of theology and Christianity and truth is now up for grabs in America. And the fact that something, and a song so beautifully said it a while ago, and I didn't even know what they were singing on that song, but it talked about everyone now is free to choose their version of the truth. And we don't have any absolutes left much in our culture today because we've cut ourselves loose from the Word of God and the Scripture. I hope you haven't done that. I hope you still recognize the authority of the Word of God, that God who created you and made you in His image has the right to determine what is right and wrong and righteous and unrighteous for you and for other people. One of my favorite theologians today is a man named David Wells. He's written five or six books all on this same subject. He was written a book a few years ago called No Place for Truth. Whatever happened to evangelical theology? Now think just about the title of his book. Whatever happened to the truth? He acknowledges that we're in trouble because in the churches we don't know what truth is. We're losing the truth an absolute declaration of truth. Whatever happened to evangelical theology, the book is not about cultists and false teachers and heretics. It's about the people we call evangelicals who are supposed to be the people of the book, who traditionally have believed in the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Scripture. It's one of the things that made us evangelical. And he writes, whatever happened to that among evangelicals? And in the book, he talks about that today evangelical Christianity, which is the most conservative, which is the most biblical of all the types of Christianity espoused in the country today, 
He said evangelical Christianity is now badly divided and split into three camps, three different constituencies, three categories of people. And what are the categories? Number one, he says there are the marketers, the people who believe that out there in the world, the population are consumers, and that Christianity is the church's product and that we are supposed to do whatever is necessary to get those people to come to church. We market the faith. The faith is a commodity. We identify the felt needs of the consumer just like they do at Walmart or they do in a marketing survey. They call you and say, do you like this car? Do you not like it? And so on. We find out what people want at the church, and we give it to them. That's the only way to fill the seats today. Just give them what they want. Give them some sort of Christianized counterpart of what the world has to offer, whether it be your music or the way people dress or the way you preach or your presentation or your programs, whatever. Give them what they want. Market the the, the commodity, i.e. Christianity, and then they'll come and get it. They're consumers. That's the first group. He says the second group. They're the emergents. These are the people who are into spirituality. This is the church that Oprah would join if she were going to come to Florence and join a church. They're into spirituality, but the spirituality is not about Jesus and the Bible and the Christian faith. It's a spirituality about looking down inside yourself and finding yourself and all that kind of thing. And then he said the third group are the truth lovers. And I read that and I said, count me in. Count me in. If I could describe myself and as an evangelical Christian today and in one of those camps, I would say, I want to be a lover of the truth. More than anything, I want to be loyal and faithful to what the truth really is and what it stands for. That's a little brief comment or two on the truth. But let's move on to God's truth. Because you see, now, when we put God with the word truth, when we modify that word from A to Z, ladies and gentlemen, from A to Z, from the beginning to the end, from the alpha to the omega, Christianity rests upon a foundation of truth. Everything about Our faith involves a truth claim, a claim to be true. For example, God is a God of truth. It says that in Deuteronomy 32 and 4. It says it again in Psalm 31 and 5. It says it in different ways as well. Those verses say God is a God of truth. That's one of his names. He's the God of truth. Isn't that a great name? But then it says, for example, in Titus, that God cannot lie. In fact, it goes further. It says it's impossible for God to lie because it would be absolutely 100% contrary to his very nature. He would be contradicting his very nature were he to lie. It not only says that God is a God of truth, it says that the Holy Spirit 
It calls him the spirit of truth. John chapter 16, the spirit of truth. In fact, the Bible says the spirit of truth will guide you and me into all truth. We have inside us as born-again Christians the Holy Spirit who is going to direct and guide our lives, and he's going to direct us straight to the truth if we will listen to him and follow his leading. And then it says about the Lord Jesus of Christ that Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. Notice a slight, uh, uh, notice a small thing but a very important thing, a critical thing. Jesus did not say, I tell the truth. He said, I am truth. Everything about me is truth. There's no falsehood in me in any sense. I am truth. Get hold of that, Christian. You're going to need that in the days ahead, I think. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and so on. Then it says these words. And he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace, 100% grace, and without compromising grace, he was also full of truth. And we typically think of them as almost being opposites. The truth sometimes is pretty hard-edged. And grace is loving and kind and merciful. And here's one person who is full of both of those qualities, grace and truth, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I read to you a text from John chapter 18, and it's, Christ at the judgment of Pilate. And Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus said, well, you think I'm a king. You say I'm a king. Well, do you have a kingdom? And Jesus said, I sure do. My kingdom is not of this earth. It's a spiritual kingdom. Someday it will be of this earth. Right now it's not. If it were an earthly kingdom, I'd call my forces and we'd have a battle, but it's, it's, it's a spiritual kingdom. Pilate didn't get a hold of that. A pagan emperor who thought he was godlike himself, or a pagan governor, rather, who thought he was godlike himself. He couldn't comprehend that yet, but he would before it was over. And then Jim, Jesus said to him, Pilate, the reason I came, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible, and, 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 and we don't think about it. The reason that I came for this cause, I came into the world. Why did you come, Jesus, whoever you are? Why did you come into the world? I'd like to know. You call yourself a king. Tell me why you came. I came to bear witness of truth. I came to be truth in my character, in my actions, in my words, but I also came to speak truth. I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. And in John chapter 17 and verse 17, one of those you must know verses in the Bible, Jesus speaking to his disciples and referring to Scripture itself says, 
Thy word is what? True. You know what Jesus didn't say? He said, he didn't say the word contains the truth. We don't believe here at the Florence Baptist Temple that the Bible contains the truth. You see, if we said that, it would mean that parts of it may not be truth. We believe not that the Bible contains the truth. We believe the Bible is the truth, the very truth of God. Oh, how important in this evangelical world where people are looking inside one group for spirituality inside themselves. Another group is trying to sell Christianity as a happy times, good time deal that we can experience. And if you get a certain experience, it's going to carry you. And over here, we are saying, no, Christianity is truth. It's not those other things. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, hear me clearly this morning. Christianity is not about feeling better. Christianity is not about getting more satisfaction out of life. Christianity is not a success course to make you have more worldly success and a better image. Christianity is not primarily about better relationships. Christianity is not about experiencing private miracles. Christianity is not about spirituality that is not based on Scripture and on the person of Christ. Christianity is not about understanding your inner self, whatever that means. Christianity is not about having fun. Christianity is about truth. Read my lips. It's about truth. And when you divorce it from truth, and anything else becomes superior to truth in your mindset, you're on the slope, the slippery slope. It'll take you away from God and his truth. Biblical faith is about truth. Objective truth. Truth in a standard that is external from me. Some days I don't feel like a child of God. Some days I hurt. Some days I'm disappointed. Some days I'm down. I don't look down inside me to determine my relationship with Almighty God. My relationship with Him is not based on how I feel. It is based on truth, actual facts that I can depend upon that are consistent with reality. That's been the foundation of historic classical Christianity from day one, from the day that Jesus our Savior walked on the earth. And the Holy Spirit called the spirit of truth. He directed certain men to write down what God wanted them to write because God was in the process of trying to reveal himself to us, to tell us about himself and who he is and what he is like. And he laid his hand upon these men and directed them to write down what God wanted revealed. These men were fallible men. They were sinners. They weren't any better than you or me. 
They were men with a fallen, broken nature. And yet the Holy Spirit of God got within their minds and their hearts, and he overruled their mistakes and their inadequacies and their deficiencies that were part of their just being human. And the Holy Spirit told them the very words, and they wrote those words down, and those words have come to us down through the centuries, and we call them the Bible, the Scriptures. The Word gives me true knowledge of the universe around me. It doesn't begin in John 3, 16, telling me that God loved the world, as wonderful as that is. It begins in Genesis 1, 1, and tells me there is a God before there's anyone and anything else. In the beginning, God. And that he is so powerful, he spoke a universe into existence. Didn't take him a million years to speak it, That's an affront to him. If he has all power, he can speak it as quickly as he wants into existence, which he did. And I'm a part of that universe. I live in that universe. And the Word tells me about myself. It gives me true insights into human nature. The Bible tells me why people act like they act. It tells me why I act like I act. It tells me why I have the battles that I have inside my own heart and inside my own life. It's true truth, as Francis Schaeffer said. It tells me why I'm like I am and why the world is like it is. It tells me that the world is broken and that when the world was broken, sin came in and it became a part of the very fabric of my being. And there's nothing that can take away the fabric of my being. It's a part of my humanity. I'm a fallen man. But it tells me that God sent his son, a redeemer. And the redeemer shed his blood and he became the substitute and he took my place. The wonderful book of Revelation chapter 1 contains one of my very handful of favorite scriptures in all the Bible in verse 5. Where it says that he loved us, first of all. And based upon the fact that he loved us, he gave himself and he shed his blood for our sins. And while I'm still a broken man, I can have victory. I don't have to succumb to my sinful pull and nature that's inside my being that God in grace has given me something to enable me to believe in Him and to know Him and live for Him. My Bible tells me of moral absolutes, values that are universally true. And my Bible is to my faith what the yardstick is to the pulpit. It gives me the standard by which I measure my activities my thoughts, the words that I say, even the motivations down deep in my heart that nobody will ever know about. They see my actions. They don't know what motivated me. The Bible measures all of that because it's a true standard. It gives me information to live in this universe. It gives me information to discern and to judge. And I don't mean that in a negative way for you postmoderns. 
But I mean, it in, I mean it in a practical way. It gives me the ability to judge the culture. And because everybody's doing it doesn't mean that I need to do it. Because every church somewhere else may be doing something doesn't mean I need to follow them off the cliff. It means that I have a standard, God's standard. And though I fail miserably in carrying that out, at least I know what the standard is. And I ask God for grace to help me do it. It teaches me the dignity of the individual, his or her uniqueness. It teaches me that all life is valuable, and it teaches me that I'm made in the image of God. That when I look at another human being, when I look at you, when we bump fists and shake hands out in the foyer, I'm looking into the image of God, that you are special. And if it's the most handicapped or frail, or if it's in the womb, or if it's in the nursing home at the very verge of death at hospice, it's still the image of God. It's the image of God, the value of life. Today, that's all under attack in America. Turn in your Bible with me to a couple of passages here. Let me show you what I mean. Second Thessalonians, I think, has predicted or prophesied the times in which we live. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let no man deceive you. Deception is lying, isn't it? It's spinning the truth. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, referring to the day of the second coming up in verse 1 and 2, it won't come till there be a falling away first. What is the falling away? We use the word apostasy. It is people who have known the truth, and they willfully turn from it because the truth is too hard. The truth is just not worth being faithful to. They turn away in droves. First Timothy. Turn over there, chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. The Spirit, that's the Spirit of truth, speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. The faith represents truth. Expect in the last days, just before the Lord Jesus returns to the earth, a turning away from truth. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. 2 Timothy verse 4 and 3. Now you have your Bible there before you. When I study, I often use an amplified version because it just expands the verbs. And I love this passage in the Amplified. I'll read it and you follow it with me in your Bible. For the time is coming when people will not tolerate sound, wholesome instruction. But having ears itching for something pleasing and gratifying... They will gather to themselves one teacher after another, up to a considerable number, 
chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors that they themselves hold. And they will turn aside from hearing the truth and they will wander off into myths and man-made fictions. They will turn aside from the truth. I don't want to hear it, preacher. If I stopped there, it'd be a pretty heavy, pretty gloomy message, wouldn't it? Be as cloudy as it is outside today. But go to Ephesians 6 and let me show you a wonderful passage. It tells me what you and I need to do in the light of what is happening. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, we have this wonderful passage that you're familiar with. We call it, uh, it's the passage about the, taking up the armor of God, the armor of God. Chapter 6 and verse 10, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the deceits, the trickeries of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Read with me, good and loud and strong. And having done all to stand. The word stand is an interesting word. It means to assume a fixed moral position, not to waver, not to be up and down, to assume a fixed moral position to stand. And having done all, whatever else you do, stand. And then it repeats it, verse 14. Look with me now in your Bible. Stand therefore, having your loins, that would be your waist, girt or clothed with what? Truth. There are six pieces of that armor. Look up here and listen to me. There's a reason truth is first. There's a reason that truth is first. He likens truth to the belt that the Roman soldier wore. Imagine a tool belt like a workman would wear today out here on a construction job. The Roman soldier wore that belt. Notice first, truth encircles us. Truth completely goes around us. It's the belt of truth. There's no place for anything else to come in. 360 degrees of truth. Notice, secondly, that the Roman soldier hung his tools on his belt. That was the purpose of it. He carried a small sword called a rima for hand fighting, like a knife, a hunting knife. He carried there a cup from which he would eat. If he got tired, he would hang his helmet on the back of it. All of his other tools of warfare hung on his belt. Truth, the belt of truth, is what holds up the other weapons. The weapon of prayer, the weapon of righteousness, all the things that goes and talks about the breastplate of salvation, the helmet, all that, it all depends upon the belt holding it all together. That which is consistent with and corresponds to what is real in the world. 
In chapter 1 and verse 13, it refers to the gospel as being the word of truth. The word of truth, the gospel. If you're here today and you're not saved, again, my verse from Revelation, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. That's the word of truth. And to we who are saved, Jesus is our cause today. Our cause is not the Florence Baptist Temple. It's far bigger than that. Our cause is the Lord Jesus Christ. And like him, we are to bear witness to the truth. That's the purpose of Andrew's army. It's what I'm doing right now, bearing witness to the truth. I close with the question I ask you to begin. How important is the truth to you? How important is the truth of God in your life this morning, church member? Bow your heads with me, please, as we stand reverently and quietly to our feet.